Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast with me, Henry Femby-Taylor. And today I'm joined by Neil Thompson. Hello. Hello. And Simon Hart, the head of Digital Twins and Cyber Physical Infrastructure at Innovate UK. That's really easy to say and quick. Hello. Good to have you here. Good to be here. The reason why we're here is has been a long history. So I suppose there's two parts of the conversation. One is actually the road of... Um, Digital transformation in the construction sector has been a long one, and there's not many people that have been consistently involved with it. And yourself, I think the, the population of that people is quite small. So someone that's actually been on the front line of how that's been invested in and and developed over time. And then there's the future. And he's smiling. So that We're in the bowels of the Connected Places catapult in this beautifully soundproofed room. Um, Apart from the roof. And the roof is glass tiles that people are walking across in heels, which is great. I feel I'm very connected. I feel very connected to the place. I don't know yeah, about you. Yeah, the, the connection to the place. And is... if they keep doing that, I might catapult somebody. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, when we we've had a lot of events here um, related to well, actually, if we go way back into the into the BIM world, uh, which is where I met Neil, um, the we did some things called the AEC Hackathon. Um, be yes. a couple of years of those. Um, the original one was here. Um, They're still going, aren't they? They are, yeah. They're international yeah. now. Oh, yes. Well, they always, yeah. always were. They were. We were the first one to bring it out of San Francisco. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Um, so I've had many, uh, well, weekends and evenings into the late nights spent in this in this space and potentially in this booth here where some of our teams used to uh, used to hang out and, uh, and awesome. do their, their various hacking. So, yeah, it was good fun. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, hacks are, hacks are great. It's amazing how much you can get out of people when you don't make them. And you just say, yeah. we have a problem to solve. Do you want to solve it? And they're like, yeah, I will commit way more time, effort, and brain power to this than I do for the thing I get paid. That's and if you top those calories up with a bit of pizza. Absolutely. Yes. Oh, yeah. yes. I, I, I guess I've got quite a bit of affinity with this place because I'm just thinking of cool meetings I've had. So there's, there's BIM stuff, there's twin stuff, there's... Um, so I think it was this, the Future Cities catapult and... That's right. Um, you and... You and um, Mills. Mills. Yeah, you and, and Mills. And Stefan... Webb. Webb, that's yes. it. Yes. Um, doing the future planning... That's right. ...stuff and just all the interesting people have been brought together. And I'm, I'm sure, I, I mean, uh, the, the, like the change that's been um, um, kicked off here... Um, you know, these things have gone off into influencing government policy and at both national and local level and yeah, yeah. it impacts people's lives. I think they're the, still going. Yeah, mm, they're, the they're still of, doing a lot um, here. Um, if people are interested, it's uh, just you know, search for catapults and you'll find connected places catapult um, and see all the things they do. It's all I mean, catapults, you say, are, are Innovate UK funded. So they receive um, grant funding from us for the core grant. And then they also do some external work to bring in additional income. And then they do some collaborative work on projects that are funded. So if people got ideas, they can work with catapults to get access to places, to people, to equipment, to data sets that they wouldn't normally be able to get access to. So that's the whole point of them is to mm. sort of accelerate. If you're an SME or a startup and you don't have access to something, um, you, you can use a catapult to be able to do that. So. 
Yeah, it's yeah. been really interesting. I've been kind of doing a tour of quite a few of the catapults in the last couple of years. And I, I think that they are different from your typical research organization in that they are much more focused on making products and services that work for people and that have a life. And I think that is the the big difference. I, I, I don't know I'd go to a catapult for theoretical research, but if I wanted to make a new product or improve a product or improve a service, I think this is where I would be coming. Yeah. yeah I yeah. think where it was articulated well, I remember I got involved with um, a special interest group as part of, it was part of the KTN network and it was the robotics and AI Fantastic, yes. And yeah, we, that's my colleagues. Yeah, David, and David they, Lane and Paul Clark are in that? Is that them? I think they are. They are yeah. connected. Well, we, they are two podcasts ago. There will be three podcasts ago by this by the time this guy's out. Nice. And yeah, the, the, and, we love uh, those guys. Returning yeah. guests as well. Yeah, yes. Guests as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, the interesting thing, so we did, we did a paper on um, you know, using the catapults and the KTNs and how you use them to implement robotics. And I, I, for the love of me, I cannot remember the name of the curve, but there's a curve that was used from research in from from the catapults about the gap, okay. closing the gap between, you know, um, you've got the TRLs. Oh, so you've got the yes. early TRLs and all the investment that happens in the creation of a product. You've got the industry on the the, the right hand side at TRO eight. I think it goes that's up there, right. Yeah, yep. there's this gap into it's the, the so-called valley of death. That's the one, and yeah. I think you know. Yeah, global use case and standard for gold standard for bridging that gap is 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 what this is. is, is Absolutely, about, and there's still I think there's still challenges there. The the yeah the the valley of death for people who are not not so familiar in in this term is is effectively there's a lot of funding uh, goes into early stage research. So you basically you know theoretical research leading out into some early stage um, trials or demos pilots. Um, and the challenge, I think, with the value of death is that how do you then get that into a commercial product? And it is it has always been a challenge because there is researchers will typically spend you know three, four, five, six years at university, um, maybe doing a PhD uh, to develop something, and then but then when they finish, they'll go off and go and get a job somewhere and do something completely different. So what happens to that research that they did? How do you, how do you maintain that? How do you get that commercialized? How do you get startups interested in it, or maybe university spinouts? Um, so the value of death kind of refers to this, this gap you get at the end of end of those cycles of R and D um, or research R, I should say, uh, not the D bit. Um, but Innovate UK was founded ultimately to to bridge that gap. So it's to take it is effectively turning the the research into commercial output um, and economic growth, whether that's through employment or additional taxes being spent or exports or you know product services being generated and it's still I think it's still true today it's um, it's still a challenge um, particularly in things like digital twins um, and as you know my as previous sectors or existing sectors in uh, in construction um, getting the really good ideas out of universities and turning them into things that can be really used um, when you hit all the barriers of regulations and uh, commercial concern and um, even just the the risk appetite of a large firm to try something completely experimental on a big high risk project that is a yeah it's still something that we need to tackle yeah definitely I think it's really interesting that um, I, I was just having a Twitter debate earlier with people um, and I think while that's true I think there is also uh, not an appetite for 
businesses to spend their own money. They'd much rather spend somebody else's money. If that is a client's, then it needs to be, they need that risk envelope to be nicely sealed um, and delivered. Um, And that that is another reason that I think the built environment sucks at repeating innovation because we're very good at doing it. We do it and then we kind of give it to somebody and like it was a one-off, we go, great, we did that. And the person we're giving it to, yeah, we, we, we wash our hands of it. And the person we're giving it to has no use for it. There's been there's been some good examples in that though. I think the so so my previous program that I worked on it was the ICF Transformer Construction Program. Mm. Uh, my colleague Mike Pitts is still still working on that one and 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 doing some great great work in the sector. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you if you look back at some of the examples that we worked on back then, we had things like the MMC, yeah, modularized components for mm. for house building, and one of the the standout sort of uh, successes of that at that era was when Homes England, Sekasui House, I think it was Legal and General, I might have got that wrong, but it was one of the one of the UK companies had formed um, had formed a, a consortium to start doing that in the UK, and it failed. Unfortunately, it was really great fanfare when it was announced. It was like this is, could be the future, but it failed. I think about six to twelve months ago. Um, and that they couldn't make it work. And it's a real, real shame to see that mm. happen. But then you have got some good successes. If you look at some of the digital tech that's come out um, and, and has made its way to construction sites and is remaining and, and is you know now becoming commonplace on construction sites, that's really fantastic. And the hope that BIM was a small part of that, um, simply because it brought in that level of digital awareness into a sector mm. that really wasn't very good at it. You've been part of that story arc of, I'm thinking about back to the task group days and in, into sort the, of... The UK BIM task group. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and and getting into sort of the early days of the Centre of Digital Britain and into the transform construction piece. I think um, one in, so interesting feedback from... So Richard Robinson, who's Deputy Chair of the CLC, him coming in and expressing um, that... Uh, from his perspective, leader in industry, that the the BIM mandate was a, a a useful thing for accelerating transformation in out in out, out in industry. Yeah, um, you know, he, he used to um, I think he was chief operating officer at, at HS2 in his previous job, um, and you know, for someone in that level of industry to say, well, actually, that is a success story that we need to repeat. So it's great that it's being picked up as something that is successful because I think you know from a government policy perspective. It it was incredibly impactful. I mean, how yeah, many people yeah. talk about it? It, yeah. it did create. Um, I don't want to say because um, I know when people say, "Oh, it creates an industry" or something that's seen as a negative connotation, but it did actually create an industry for information management, the profession of information management. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. We, it did. Anything from that experience that um, will help, you know, you know, what's coming si- next? Si- si- yeah, Simon, Simon from ten years ago oh, speaking to Simon today, looking forward to. The things that are coming along. Well, you know, what, what advice would you give yourself? It, it worked. That kind of mandate worked. Yes. Um, actually, fun fact: there was actually no mandate. I know. Well, uh, we know that. <laughs> I think that was also that. one of the, the great successes of the mandate. Is when you we all discovered there wasn't, and then decided not to tell anybody. <laughs> it's it worked, a mandate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. Uh huh. Hundred percent. Totally. It, it, it kind of worked really well because the what what it did was it. it it focused the, on the buying power of all the major projects. So mm. um, the UK has got a vast amount of, of pipeline of future infrastructure projects, so everything from power, water, housing, mm. social infrastructure, uh, roads and rail, everything. It's, it's, it's huge. It's really, really significant. And the, 
what they did was was effectively say that you can't supply into that unless you're BIM level two compliant, um, and and everything effectively flowed out from that mm. is that it meant that all the big suppliers, the big contractors who do all the major work at, for, for government, and government was the biggest customer of this construction sector, all meant they had to very quickly adapt and uh, upskill, and that then flowed into the supply chain, and then that then drove R&D and innovation, and we saw some of the great little companies and spin-outs you know, creating some really good products um, to service that market, and, it, and it's gone on, and it's, mm. it's still going. Mm. Um, I think one of the, one of the challenges... I think for construction, and we saw this um, unfortunately when the pandemic hit, is that on the transforming construction program, at the very time when we should have been focusing on where the next wave of funding and government intervention is coming from, mm. the pandemic hit, and everybody's attention just went on to survival in multiple dimensions. Poor choice of world in multiple terms, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but certainly from from the business's perspective, we had so many companies almost fail and drop out of that whole program mm, yeah um but keeping that going unfortunately it meant that we weren't focusing i think even as the whole sector of the whole industry it was not focusing on on where the next intervention was coming from mm. so you know where is sector deal two mm. you know where is um where is the next type of bim mandate um you know right now they've got skills problems they've got workforce problems which kind of hit yeah. even more challenging areas but that would have been something I think to focus on. So yeah, ten years ago, I think keep those kind of, those kind of mandates. Like look for the next ones because it unifies all the government together, unifies the sector together, and they just pull everything towards the end goal. I think that's interesting. From my journey into this world, there's a there's a lot more to construction and funding construction innovation than I think a lot of people appreciate because we don't neatly sit. And we, you know, we don't go straight to the Chancellor of the Exchequer and with a blank check and say, "Please, uh, may we have some money?" Yeah, we're whatever. not defence. <laughs> Quite true. <laughs> Quite. But I, I think it's it's interesting because it means that we have to uh, serve various needs that do align approximately in the same direction. So. Um, DLUC, as it's now called, the Department for Level Leveling Up Housing and Communities, looks around for validation. Yes, yeah, that is well the done. Yeah. Do you remember? <laughs> Do you remember? So you know that housing is in the name, and yeah. communities is in the name. So there's a, a planning aspect there as well. Um, so we've kind of got that over there. Then we have the Department for Business, Energy, and Industrial Strategy, where a lot of the funding for BIM and uh, digital twins has yep. come out of ourselves uh, exactly yeah. <laughs> and then you know so innovate uk are in that mix as well i think it's uh it'd be interesting to just kind of demystify demystify that a little bit for people so they can maybe understand what on earth is going on in the uk because we have produced a success that the bim mandate was very successful oh, yeah. in yeah. changing behaviors i think a lot of us internally do criticize it and want it to continue improving but we do acknowledge over a beer or a glass of wine or, or a cup of tea, that it is much better than everything else that there is. Absolutely. I was just thinking of the people we just bumped into. Oh, yeah. Uh, the international programme yes. um, was, I mean... Shout out to Adam Matthews there. Yes. Yeah, shout out to Adam Matthews and Richard and co. In terms of the, there is a global brand for Britain still. Yeah. And it won't last forever if we don't mean it so it's great to see that they're but there's another angle because they they've had been working with the the foreign office yes you know yeah. and that's like another another angle to how you know it's a complex 
uh, governance system, yeah. but that is managing to kind of somehow at times come together to solve these big problems. And, so, and some of that work, I think, was, yeah, I mean, that's been going on for quite some time. I think you even went on, yeah. Yeah, went on, on a trip for many years ago with, with on the BIM program. You went to Chile, didn't you, or Mexico? Went to Mexico City, which was a wonderful experience. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That was, that was, that was, yeah. So something really good happens there because it actually means that yeah, you know, whilst BIM mandate and all that was going on, uh, this is sort of twenty. This is probably getting into 2015, 2016, um, There was a whole international team who were going around um, the world teaching other governments how to do BIM the UK way, you know, with our standards, with and, and teaching all the lessons that have come out of it, so that they could then increase demand for BIM and then transform their own industries. But of course, who were the best people to go and help with that as companies? It was the UK companies. Yep. So it meant that that you you were effectively you know, opening up a whole lot of export markets for for UK companies to go and help uh, overseas. Yeah. And that's that's really good for the UK economy if you can do that. Um, so it worked. It did work really well. Um, and it's yeah, good to see, uh, yeah, just incidentally yeah, for obviously people not aware, but yeah, we just bumped into. A whole lot of people we hadn't seen for quite some time upstairs in the reception. So, yes. at the catapult. So it was good, good timing. The global um, BIM network yes, is alive is. and well. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think that that sort of intervention can have a really, really powerful impact. Um, and I think that we we are looking to do that in other areas. I mean, some of my colleagues and other other teams have had successes of, of that, um, particularly in. Um, some energy efficiency products. Um, there is things like the Energy Catalyst um, that that takes UK companies and and their expertise and gets them all over the world um, selling product services mm. into markets they never would have normally been able to access. So it can be done well. Mm. Um, I think the, the our challenge now is going to be, you know, what happens with with the emerging digital twin market. Yep. Um, and uh, and where we go with that? So where do we go with that? Uh, excellent. <laughs> he is a professional. That was some great segueing there. I'm on board for that level of segueing. Which is funny because it's actually time to segue into our sponsor for this episode, XYZ Reality. So XYZ Reality has flipped the script on the way that teams build complex projects with the world's most accurate augmented reality solution, the engineering grade Atom. For the first time, you can view and compare holograms of 3D BIM models on-site in real-time against real conditions, allowing your teams to accurately validate work at every step. And the impressive part is, they achieve less than 5mm accuracy, knocking the competition out of the water. The Atom is so accurate, you can literally build from it, so you'll never build anything wrong again. No more looking furtively from iPad to iBeam for you. XYZ Reality provides you with a fully managed service that includes a dedicated field application engineer, meaning you can step back and let them do the heavy lifting. You don't need to waste time and money on training and dedicated staff, you can get started straight away. And what's truly amazing is XYZ Reality reports all the build issues into a single, easy-to-use dashboard the moment they're raised. This level of real-time data flow means no more data lag, loss or misinterpretation you'll be able to spend more time building and less time dealing with issues. Is it accurate? Yes. Will it reduce rework? Yes. Will it save your project time and money? Definitely. In fact, their customers are reporting their rework activities have dropped from 30% to less than 1%, achieving over nine times return on investment. So if you're looking to take control of rework, increase project accuracy 
and change the way you build. Go check out XYZ Reality at xyzreality.com. Book a demo and prepare to be blown away. So, that's XYZ Reality. Build it right, first time. Okay, let's go back to the guys. Let's see what they're all saying. Where's... We were segueing. That was it. Sorry, my segue segued. Let's desegue. Resegue. Anyway. So, so where do we yeah. go with that? Because I think... It, I'm going to put my tuppence worth in. The, the digital twin market really has been coalescing various other existing markets, in my mind. Yeah. So it is creating a market in in the way that the UK was creating a BIM Level 2 market, or an ISO 19650 market, in that those things, a lot of those things and processes already existed in terms of BIM. It was, you know, naming conventions and using a common data environment and standard processes and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And digital twins, we're kind of trying to standardize the approach to data ingestion, data sensing and management uh, and communication and doing things with that. Um, because I think, to quote Michael Greaves, when we had him on, it's just an analogy. It gets very frustrated when, you know, we were talking, we've done a few podcasts on standards, on what is a digital twin? What is it? And working on the Apollo protocol, we've seen that different sectors have different views on it. So oh, yeah. I think it's it's interesting to uh, maybe try, you know, we're trying to coalesce this market into something that's a, an individual thing, but it still exists of all of those things, Internet of Things, data science. How do we bring all of those different actors together is, is I guess, a general question. Yeah, I, that's... Um it is a great challenge. Yes. Um, so, um, so one of the things I think has happened is, um, I think in the last few the last few months, uh, somebody say months, probably six months, there's been a sudden upsurge in interest in in digital twins, um, and a, a large number of outputs of projects, either research projects or R and D projects that that have, that have come together, um, and you can see that. You know, plugging our, our hosts here, Click to Place Catapult, we've got the digital twin hub. Mm -hmm. um, they they've seen a, a large increase in the number of of people who've signed up to it and joined that. And then the Gemini calls, which are great little webinar on a Tuesday, they they've again seen a really fantastic uptake in in number of people. Um, that if only we'd had that about t two years ago when when the spending review. The government spending review is being put together. Mm. We may have had a slightly different outcome. So it's a great evidence base. I yes. mean, if you do go check out digitaltwinhub.co.uk, you can come and join. Yeah. And there's a number of different forums. Uh, but you'll see the Gemini calls are all recorded on there through the YouTube channel. And there's just you, you will see there's there are a lot of case studies, video presentations, documents. There's tools. There's lots of cool stuff on that. I'm plugging it as well because yeah. uh, I'm a fan. We are the fan club of the digital twin. Yeah, yeah. So can you imagine? Yeah, we're 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 uh, knives drawn with the digital twin hub. No, we are not a knives drawn with the digital twin hub. But it's, I mean, also good. I mean, yeah, I mean, fair play. The digital twin hub was created by by Cambridge CCDBB, uh, the previous the previous program that was that was run um, actually that came out of Digital Built Britain, Centre for Digital Built Britain. Um, so yeah, it, it the a lot of the work has was was done in that community. Um, and is now available as Digital Twin Hub, and it's, it's expanding wider and wider. And I think it's a good thing to see. But there, there's a there's a couple of things here that's gone on. Is that so? People might not be aware, but there was the the, the spending review, the government spending review, which is the big um, 
it's a bit like a budget, but it's bigger. It's effectively where all the departments across government get told how much money they've got for the next three to four to five years. Um, and as a science, science and R&D, UKRI puts in its bids for what it wants to deliver all of its programs. Um, and there's lots of then uh, analysis and economics and forecasting. And eventually, you end up with a figure. <laughs> I, I, I imagine a lot of very senior people look who look very smart standing in front of a huge ornate wooden door cap in hand <laughs> please if only it was that <laughs> <laughs> it, it's more people in the civil service office with uh, with post-it notes and uh, yeah, and yeah. yeah meanwhile back in the real world yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's um you know out of that there was the some people may know the seven technologies that were in the innovation strategy I'm not going to try and list them off because I'll forget them. But the ones that the digital twins, uh, cyber-physical infrastructure, was part of that. Hello, Future Henry here. thought you might want to know what those seven technology families were. So one is advanced materials and manufacturing. Two is AI, digital, and advanced computing. Three is bioinformatics and genomics. Four is engineering biology. Five is electronics, photonics, and quantum. Six is energy and environment technologies, and seven is robotics and smart machines. There you go. All right, back to the podcast. Originally, um, but the because of COVID, the spending review got delayed. So there was a, effectively a rollover spending review. And then, uh, then a, a few months later, they started revising everything that was going to go into it. So the ultimate spending review that came out the other end, Digital Twins missed out by... A, a very small amount. So, so the original plan for all everyone at UKRI and all my colleagues, UKRI, Innovate, NERC, EPSRC, ESRC, VBSRC, STFC, I think that's all of them. All the C's and E's. They're all councils. councils, aren't they? Research councils. It yes. always ends in research councils, right, doesn't it? That's right, yeah. So those are research councils. So we all had a fantastic uh, five-year program ready to go if we'd been successful in getting the money. Uh, and the money we were talking about was the region of sort of billion pounds over 10 years. So it was really substantial. Um, this was backed up by things like the integrated review mm -hmm. um, and various science uh, science policies and chief scientific advisors and everything else. So it was all there ready to go, but there wasn't enough money in the budget basically to do everything. So um, quantum engineering biology and AI were funded. Um, Digital Twin is just off the bottom of the list currently. But that doesn't mean it's not getting any funding. It just means th the sort of scale at which it was done or could have been done isn't there yet. And actually part of the reason for that um, was that it was difficult at the time to identify the key market and the key need. So if we'd had, going back to sort of 10 years ago, and said, okay, if we'd had a, a BIM mandate or a Digital Twin mandate, that potentially could have been the lever that allowed us to, or allow actually the economists and the treasury people to tick the box and say, yes, we'll fund that one. Mm. So it's really interesting the way it's developed because then, lo and behold, the last six months or so, there's been a massive uptake, an uptake in the, in the level of interest. Mm. Um, so we always kind of knew this, is that we were probably, we were probably running about 12 months behind AI as a technology. Mm. But you can see how AI has exploded in the last few, well, actually the last few months with uh, GPT and various other forms of, of uh, openly the available things, AI. The things that have been filling our uh, <laughs> yeah. social media yes. feeds. I think it, yeah, yes. wrecking your timelines. Yeah, yeah. The, there's that. Yeah, that that I think is where digital twins potentially is, um, and I think the 
this has all been, there's a lot of people behind the scenes, including myself and EPSRC, driving a lot of this, and also fair play to you know, colleagues at Bayes who are really championing this, and also all the external supporters. So you mentioned yeah, Paul Clark and and uh, David Lane and uh, Muffy Calder and various others who've also been pushing this from mm. from a from a strategic point of view because mm. it's something the UK is actually quite good at, uh, and we should be we should be really championing that. I think when we are asking pragmatic questions, we can be very good. And I think that is what digital twins do do. I think sometimes we look at very enviously at the USA, uh, how they can just create and create and create. And there just happens these huge businesses, which is great, you know, and good for them. And I would love it if we could do that. But it is a different landscape here. And I think when we do make change, we do bring more people along. I think mm. we do do a much more of a societal change. We're like, right, how does this impact everybody? You know, what's our, what could we do about this? And I think digital twins, like you say, are, are having that um, that period now of of clearly showing some value. I think there was. I, I wouldn't want to put put where it it was on the Gartner hype curve because I think you could uh, you could have argued that it was on the hype, but it was also in the trough of disillusionment. Yes. At the same time, yeah. um, and I think simple questions: Are you managing with data? Do you do you actually know? Do these decisions that you're making have any basis in fact? Are the sort of questions that do very well in mm. a UK board room and a UK program and project uh, meeting? Because nobody knows. Because yeah. we we don't know. We don't have the data about what's going on um, in design, in construction, in the operation. Because we're not. We have no sensing. We don't know. We don't know what that is. And seeing projects come through that are starting to um, really demonstrate that, I think, is starting to push that needle. I, I think there's another, I, I guess, a commercial risk that's sitting and should be sitting on your risk registers, and if it's not, get it on there, is that over the past five years, the um, sort of the data inputs to our processes from a construction energy perspective have become, have transformed. So there's licenses against the use of data now, which never was. Which, there wasn't before, no. Um, um, so there's people that can make claim onto the inputs to your design or, or, or um, feasibility study or what have you that you're doing and you're being commissioned to do, there are people making you know legal claims against the use of data um, and pursuing those. Uh, there's also on the flip side in the supply chain, um, technology companies that have flipped from selling you bits of software that you put on your desktop to in the cloud and have shifted to... I'm not providing you a software that does a certain thing. It's more of a platform that has these capabilities and it has data streams. Oh, do you want your data back? Yeah, and it's, yeah there you <laughs> no. go. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm not responsible for you. You've put your data on my thing and it's gone wrong. It's not my problem. No. So there's these commercial risks that have, that have emerged that now are um, vital conversations that are happening around yeah. data residency, its risk, its quality, its license, and what's its, what you're being exposed to. So data governance is becoming a thing, and I think it's something that should also, and this is what's creating this this uptick of interest because it's gone from, you know, it's a, a nerdy thing that the IT department might do to, ah, actually this is a vital part of participating in the digital economy, Absolutely. and we have to do something about it. I, I wonder if there is some interesting life cycle here. We have the kind of, uh, phase one is like there's the, the humming, there's gentle like of a mosquito in the background. It's not really on my radar. And then there's the presentation mode, the presentation phase. And I know that BIM went through this, you know, and then there's the, let's actually do it. 
And then there's the, oh, it was a good re- it was a good idea to do it phase. And I think we're, we're probably in that between phase three and four there of moving into people experimenting with it, mm. uh, into it becoming real. Because this, um, in terms of skills and capabilities, I think there is a quality question next to that as well, which is if we want to do more with less, we have to do more with less, then is this not, a, you know, if we can't fill the jobs, we're not making people unemployed using new techniques, using BIM, using digital twins. We're actually enabling people to do their jobs at and all. We, mm. And we never have. I mean, there's an aspect of technology will um, change the profile of a role. You know, the role of the librarian traditionally has shifted from yeah. managing books to knowledge management. I mean, as an oversimplified example, yeah. but technology has always enabled um, new new roles and it's, you know, the, the number of people in employment has always expanded. Um, so I'm giving him uh, uh, the thumbs up there because that was an excellent cup putting down without making too much noise there, Sam. Well done. <laughs> Professional. And then I just called it out, so you know, completely ruined all your good work. But yeah, I guess um, I've, I feel like I've done a lot of talking. So I think there's, there's a couple of things going on at the moment as well that, that help uh, digital twins. Um, and there's also a few things that don't help digital twins. So help digital twins is there's, um, so DCMS published the national data strategy, which is linked up with the, the Bayes consultation that ran um, earlier this year. So a lot of they, they both cross-reference each other. Um, so for those that don't know, the national data strategy has got a lot of information both on security and also on interoperability, so data sharing, um, because it's been noticed that you know, this is not just a digital twin world or even construction sector world issue. It's across all sectors in the UK. So data sharing actually at the technical level is really easy. Most most uh, most programmers, engineers, scientists, or just you know anyone can is, knows how to share data or make data available. The problem they've got, and this happened on the Credo project. I think some of you might yes, be working on it. Um, so was that the technically there wasn't a problem. It was the legals and the co- the contractual side mm. that that was was the stumbling block. And I think there's a there's a real issue here is that the d- data sharing when you when you step outside the world of GDPR, data sharing is the underpinning foundation of what digital twin or the federated digital twin networks would become. But of course, there's got to be incentives to share um, and incentives to access other information. And that, I think, is a bit of a hurdle we haven't quite tackled yet. No, no. I, I Yeah, I've been saying this for a, a while now behind closed doors, so now it's in open doors, that um, we there is a marketplace there. Um, we don't have, we haven't defined it um, we don't know what the risks are. We don't know what, what the protection should be. We don't know what people should be paid for their data because, um, you know, if people are giving us a product, we should pay them for that product. Yeah. And so, you know, yeah. just what is that? And we don't we don't know. Um, just I'm going to uh, acronym check you there because uh, I, I never remember this one. DCMS is the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. Yes. I yeah. always forget what the M stands for for some reason. Um because I I didn't actually realise that they that, so in terms of this complex landscape of departments they are somebody who who is a key player in this because they've done exactly. a lot of work in this area haven't they they have yeah and they they they've got a sort of renewed interest in uh, what they're calling secure connected places 
So if you, if you want to just Google secure connected places and DCMS, you'll find all their latest guidance and, and uh, support available. Um, so what, uh, secure connected places are basically what, what we used to call future cities. Just you know, ironically, we're sitting here in what used to be called the future cities catapult. It's now the connected places catapult. It's almost as if this is linked. Um, yeah, the, uh, wow. yeah, so coming together. <laughs> secure connected places, um, from DCSMS perspective, is that they realise that you've got things such as local authorities mm. who are sitting on a lot of data. Um, and when things go wrong, uh, like an organisation gets taken, so Hackney Council is a very good example of that. Um, they had a cybersecurity breach, well, it was actually a ransomware attack, and it, it, they are still recovering from that really? well over a year later. So yeah. the secure, secure Connected Places deals with a lot of the security of data in that space. Um, part of the work they did was a, another consultation where they sur surveyed local authorities to understand their capabilities in data sharing and cybersecurity, and they got some very mixed results Oh, really? um, which they are interpreting at the moment. I think they're going to publish it quite soon. But there's some very interesting results in sort of the regional differences um, and also the um, the perceived ability or lack of ability. So some depending on who you've asked in the organisation, you've got a very different response. Mm. So hopefully they'll be, that'll be all get published quite soon, but there's some lessons out of that. Um, but I think the, yeah, just, just go back to the, so the overall, let's say, so DCMS have got a data strategy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bayes published the Cyber Physical Infrastructure Consultation, which is digital twins and everything else um, around that environment. Um, so that's all going out and being published quite soon. And then a lot of the other departments are now picking up on this and starting to look at their own um, their own ideas of, and policies of what this mm. is going to be. So transport is probably the next one, um, and the energy sector has got to has got data challenges. It's got a lot of challenges, including operational issues, but getting their their data resolved, I think, is another big potential market for for what digital twins could do. Yeah, and I, I guess a question. So one of the things that we've got involved with on an Apollo front is um, the it's first time you mentioned. It's not. We said Apollo before. Yeah, we, we said Apollo before. Apollo, Apollo protocol connecting sectors, connecting sectors through data. Absolutely. Um, we've got involved with the smart data legislation. Excellent. Yeah. And the thing that's really exciting about that is um, there are mechanisms that are being created, albeit from a completely different corner of Bayes that have a slightly different focus that's mostly around um, you know, their use cases, um, the smart banking standards, or sorry, open banking standards as a use case. And you know, for anyone that doesn't know what that is, you know, for example, on your mainstream banks, it's quite interesting because you have your, you know, I have my NatWest banking app mm -hmm. and I can add a bank account from another bank. Um, you know, the banking sector has been through this process of standardizing their data in the focus of consumers for ease of switching, ease of use, and it's, 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 it's user focus. And I think it's quite interesting because I think, um, you know, if I, I don't know who the, I don't know, I don't know who would be the right person in the government complex to stand in front of to say, I, I find it interesting. Yeah, we have this focus on protecting the consumer from their sort of their commercial right, rights in their data, but we're not treating them as a citizen. Mm. So okay. the data rights as a citizen is slightly different to your data rights as a consumer. And we think about GDPR. Um, there's there's tons of things around um, protecting the citizen in terms of their data, in terms of climate change, 
um, think about local authorities and the, the quality of housing, the status of that, uh, how they're being maintained and what have you. And it's something I'd love to see emerge from this work is that yeah, the protection of the citizen. Because, and it's quite interesting, you said about the how the built environment is represented across the departments. I think it's quite interesting. So the construction sector as an industrial complex sits within bays and is invested in from that perspective. Yeah. But the social outcomes of the things that we build then eke out to the other departments. Other departments, yeah. Housing. Um, and, and the digital twin world is this thing that I think has its difficulty because it's it, it, the only way that it can actually articulate its value is to be coordinated across the itself as an industrial complex but then also as this thing that enables tons of social outcomes and they are uh, arms apart I mean I know that lots of efforts have been to coordinate that but I think there's this little slight shift and I'm hoping with the conversation that we're having through the smart data centers this yes we must protect the consumer but that's a completely different lens to protecting them as citizens interesting that's yeah I mean that's I think one of the original visions of data for the public good, mm. the, the report that was um, that sort of kicks a lot of this off. Um, so yeah, I think that's. Um, I mean, it's an important point. Um, the when when this all this is being developed is not to forget the actual <laughs> the end customer, the the, the consumer, the, the individual. Um, one of the the longer term visions, of course, with digital twins is is this federated model where where. I mean, I think the best explanation is from, um, I think it was Dame Wendy Hall, and apologies to, to Wendy if it wasn't, um, but the um, it was about how um, how federated digital twins become like another internet or you know an extension of the internet. So rather than just as it is now, you're accessing data sources, web pages, video streams, um, almost in some cases just static pieces of information because they're, they are... Um, they're not often fed by real-time data from sensors. Well, there are some exceptions. But a federated digital twins are basically where organizations own their own digital twins, which are being fed by information. Um, and then they could potentially then have a market where they sell access to that to other organizations. So if you're a logistics company um, who are supplying a factory it would be really good of you to, to be able to access information about the the factory's digital twin. So it's kind of simulating and modeling uh, the flows of products in and out. So you know how much products on a particular day, where it's going. But then wouldn't it be great if you could also then access um, a digital model of a, of the weather system, predictive uh, model of the weather system? Because um, then you could then feed that in so you know when your drivers might be getting slowed down or how it's going to affect um um, the air freight routes or the shipping routes, um, so so you can then start to see how this could fit together. And then, of course, there's a um, the market then develops because if you're a logistics company, you've got all that data about where your vehicles are, where the drivers are. Well, actually, maybe maybe um, uh, some uh, the vehicle manufacturers might be quite interested in that data. So you can see how this can develop. It can come to really some really simple issues though it, 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 I think there is this it, it, we are dealing with something that is inherently complex you know we're talking about you know all these different forces interacting but it's as simple as say for just going back to a, a building a digital twin of a building just for operations oh turns out the heating's been on every night 
for the last three years, which is an example I've heard. Jonathan Monkley talks about that one a lot because that was that was what they got out of theirs oh, <laughs> when, when they implemented. You know, really yeah. just immediately obvious stuff. Oh yeah, we wired it wrong. It yeah. said it was fine, but it wasn't fine because we could actually see what was going on in our system, whichever system that is. I, we're managing with data. We're actually making informed decisions on what's really happening, and that's the difference. Yes. Um, I mean, there's a company called Demand Logic, who was an Innovate UK um, success story many years ago, who built a whole business out of that. They they go into commercial buildings, they interrogate the the control system for a couple of days, and then show you where all the valves are wired the wrong way around. I mean, it's yeah, it, it's 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 that's the reality. But I think the the interesting bit now is that um, with potentially with the power of AI, you can take some sensor data and then use the processing model to tell you either what else to look at or what's going wrong. And this this gets into the, the what I think is the proper definition of digital twin rather than the things, you know, digital shadows or, or, or marketing hype, um, which is where you have this feedback loop where mm. it's um, you know, the, the, the twin itself is doing analytics and having outputs back into the real world that are then being acted upon by the real world and fed back into the model. Otherwise, so, it's just a yeah. dashboard. Yeah. Which is, which is great. Or a CAD model, which I've seen... Things yes. being sold as or a survey, three <sighs> D scan. See oh one of those. Goodness. Mentioning yeah. no names. That yeah. that's. I'll be honest. That hype is a real risk. Um, yeah, because there's real stuff going on here. Yeah, and there's. A, this was. You know, this is one of the challenges that BIM had. Was that here is the here are these. There are several cores. There were many. It it was multiple things at, and is multiple things at the same time. But as those things were moving along, lots of people were just sticking their stuff on the side. Going, yeah, we're BIM as well. Yeah, buy the BIM. Okay, great. Yes. And we need to bring it back to here is how it's making a difference. Here is what we can learn. Here is how we can improve. And here is that evidence. And that exists. So, well, there we go. On that bombshell, it exists. Digital twins are real. I'm going to call us to a close today. Thank you, Amy. Thanks so Fantastic. Much. Yeah, my absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. Come check us out on soundcloud.com. We are all over Twitter harassing people, as well as LinkedIn, all about those memes. Come say hi, and we will see you soon.